Hello, and welcome to the 4Press Podcast, presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and in this episode, I'm joined by my Golf Week colleague, writer and reporter Julie Williams. In the podcast you're about to hear, Julie and I discuss the state of amateur golf in 2020. We talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected both the U.S. women's amateur and the U.S. amateur, and other elite amateur events throughout the United States. We also talk about what it's like for college golfers right now and what it's going to be like for them, we think, in the fall and in the spring with programs basically being shut down and events across the United States being put into question. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Back Book, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the Take Anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. Okay, so now going out of my comfort zone, I'm feel pretty good about chatting about things when it comes to the PGA Tour. I can get into a little European Tour, some LPGA Tour stuff, but when you start getting into elite amateur golf, um, collegiate golf for sure, I am definitely swimming in the deep end without floaties. There's no two ways about it, but thankfully, the aforementioned Julie Williams is there to save me, throw me the life preserver, and not the kind where I'm 20 feet away and you throw it 15 feet, which doesn't, she's going to throw the life preserver all the way to me. Thankfully, Julie, who is in Cocoa Beach, Florida, how are things going down there in Florida? Going well. It's uh, it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's gee, it's July and it's Florida. I I wonder, are you surprised by the by the by the heat? No, no, not at all. What you should be surprised is is it's probably every bit as hot here in Connecticut as it is the the weekend. Nineties, humid. It won't thunderstorm and. of course, my son had a doubleheader Friday night, doubleheader Saturday morning. Um, I've had plenty of baseball for, for myself, but the nice thing is the kids are taking a shine to golf this year. And uh, hey. this summer, my uh, my 11-year-old daughter, Lindsay, lessons every week, is starting to get a little, get a little shine for golf. And the boy, who uh, is a switch hitter when it comes to baseball, is ambidextrous when he plays golf, which really, really pisses me off. Because um, he's got a he's got a four wood that he puts out there about two hundred yards with a really nice little draw to it, and he asked me the other day, "Hey, Dad, can I try your your driver?" And um, my driver being right handed, and I said, "Okay, fine, just don't bust the thing." And he piped one about two thirty straight as an arrow, and it really made me want to just quit the game because he had never hit a right handed golf club in his life and just did that. So um, the nice thing is, I now get to go to the driving range. And we're going to be playing pretty soon. Have you been able to uh, to get out there and play? What's what's the state of uh, the state of the golf world in Cocoa Beach, Florida? We are we are full speed ahead. I've been playing quite a bit, and actually, I've been walking and and carrying more than I have for at least a decade back to college. So I, it has been kind of nice to have an excuse to go out and get some exercise. And the walking traffic is pretty heavy, so I like to see that. What are the courses that you predominantly play in? Are they are they open up for walking? Do they usually get walkers or are they usually places where you would ride a cart? 
normally it's a lot of cart traffic, but there's a Muni here in Cocoa Beach. It's three nine holers, which is kind of nice because you know one nine can usually you can you can usually get on and walk, and they've got you know the the two courses devoted to eighteen hole play. So there's always usually a spot to walk, you know, except for the busiest times of the weekend. So I, I feel pretty lucky about that. And with Florida numbers obviously going up, do people still, do you think, feel safe and good playing golf? Or have you noticed over the course of the last, say, several weeks that maybe there aren't quite as many people out playing golf? I realize it is a little bit difficult since you're working a lot of the time. But, uh, <laughs> you know, do, what, what, is it, what does it feel like? What's the vibe when you're at the golf courses? You know, it's, I think the traffic is there. You know, I was talking to someone out there the other day, and, and the traffic has been heavy. You know, we're in a weird spot because we have a lot of snowbirds, and this is definitely not snowbird time. Everyone has gone back north. So this is a quiet time anyway for us, precisely mm-hmm. because it's so hot. But I don't think, you know, I think people are feeling like golf is a way you can get out, and if you do it responsibly. And, and I do see, I mean, I haven't pulled a pin out of a cup for months, and yeah. we've got the pool noodles in and it feels, you know, it just, it's becoming, it's becoming normal, right? I don't even think about pulling the pin anymore. I was never one of those people who went Bryson. I just, I continued, I continued to take it out. Um, so, I, you know, I think <laughs> I, most people are feeling comfortable. Are you, are you hitting the ball like Bryson? Have you put on 30 pounds during the pandemic and decided just to go full Hulk golf? <laughs> I, I have not. I, <laughs> I don't think I have, I have put on the, the COVID 30 or even the COVID 10. So that's good. <laughs> That's probably good since you're also like a marathon runner. And I would imagine what what might help you off the tee would hinder you around mile eight, nine, or ten. That would not be what you want. Yes, precisely. (laughs) So what we do want, though, is a little bit of your insight on amateur golf. The first big amateur events um, have started to take place. And we can talk a little bit about, for example... The North and South, which for the men um, and the women has now just just been completed. That, for people who don't know, is one of the bigger annual events. It's held every year at Pinehurst, at the Pinehurst Resort. Um, I had the unfortunate, I should say it's actually it was fortunate. I ended up going on a buddy trip. This is like 12 years ago. And we showed up on the Tuesday after the North and South was completed. And we didn't know that number two was playing the way it was. And boy, did it kick our ass. Let me tell you what. It was. It would be challenging. It is a challenging course anyways. But I, I mentioned that because the, the click down in an event like that from the way the courses are set up to what we see on TV. Now, obviously, when, when the U.S. Open was at Pinehurst, they, they had it running to the max. But these players are really, really good. And oftentimes, they're playing on golf courses that are exceptionally challenging. The 2020 U.S. Women's Amateur Championship is going to be scheduled for the first week of August at Woodmont Country Club in Rockville, Maryland. Um, What do you think, do do you think it's good or bad or indifferent that the Women's Am is essentially going to be the first of the four USGA events coming out of the shoot? What, What do you think is going to be the vibe around Rockville, Maryland for that tournament? I I think you know I've never been to a USGA championship where everything wasn't very buttoned up and there was a schedule there were professionals who had uh, you know their plan and then four contingencies after that so mm-hmm. I think I think that they will I mean they've had a lot of time to prepare I think that it'll be players sort of dipping in and and seeing you know how the usga is going to run it the players will have a lot i would i would say a lot more experience 
you know, knowing what what the expectations are on them, because I would say most of the field in the women's am, they will have played either their state amateur. A lot of girls and guys are playing their state amateurs. They're playing in the state opens. The 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 top level college players are showing up in the state open fields. And I mean, you mentioned the North South women's. We still got the women's Western. We've got the ladies um, National Golf Association amateur coming up. Um, there, there are plenty of opportunities for them to play, and they're and they're doing it. So I think it'll it, it won't be like you have a lot of kids showing up, not understanding that they need to keep their distance, not understanding that you know they they can't have as many. Not that they have an entourage, but they're you know their family and their friends, <laughs> yep. you know, with them. So so I think it'll just be okay. What are the rules here? And and the USGA will. It'll it'll be a clean operation for sure, but I think there'll probably be a lot of people watching and curious to know. Okay, how are they pulling this off? Because I'm sure it'll be a very similar plan at the USAM the next week, and then mm-hmm. they've got some time, obviously, several weeks until the women's open in December, and then you know the US, English Open a few weeks after you know after the amateurs. So, filling out the field for. Let's talk and just sort of stick with the U.S. Women's Am in a second, but but for the second, but the U.S. Amateur it's going to have a lot of similarities to it. Typically, the women's field has 156 players. This year, it's been reduced to 132, and the USGA, in order to fill out and create that field, had to go through some creative measures in order to do it. Can you explain to people what the typical procedure for filling out a field at the U.S. Women's Am would be, and what did they have to do this year in order to get the 132? So there was a lot of chatter when the U.S. Open was announced that it would be exemption categories only, and you would miss some of those really good stories from guys who would qualify in. And if you're not really familiar with the amateur scene, then you may not know that the U.S. amateur and the women's amateur are filled very similarly, and that a huge chunk of the field is open to um, players who have to qualify in. It's not a it's not a two step process like it is for the U.S. Open. It's just a it's a one day. Um, I think for the USAM it's it's typically thirty six, and for the um, for the women it's eighteen. So um, there obviously with that goes out the window. The USGA leaned right. pretty heavily on the World Amateur Golf Ranking, and and initially, you know, a lot of people were reacting to that, saying, okay, it's going to be the strongest field we've ever seen because we're exempting all of these top ranked players in for, for just to, to give you some indicator, typically in the U S amateur, the top 50 players get in off their world ranking and the Mm -hmm. women's field is the top 25. This year they extended the women's field to the top 75 and they extended the men's field all the way to the top 225. (laughs) So a huge number of the players are getting in based on world ranking, but but what maybe went overlooked, and you know you can't really know in a situation that we're in, things change daily and weekly based on travel bans, quarantine periods, just who can get you know from here to there, and so mm-hmm. a huge number, especially for the women's in the women's world ranking. A huge number of those top-ranked players are international players. In fact, at the top 100 players in the Women's World Amateur Golf Ranking, more than 70% are international players. So a huge chunk of those players, when the USGA revealed their 
um, their initial field list, uh, they, they were 126 players. So, we're, so we've still got six spots left for those three tournaments that I mentioned earlier, the North and South, mm-hmm. Women's Western, and the Ladies National Golf Association. The top two finishers get into the field. So there's where the extra six come from. But when we saw that list of 126, there were a lot of international players, including like the top four players or internationals in the ranking. They're not coming. Seven of the top ten are international, um, and and we're only getting so we're only getting three of those players in the top ten. And so that meant that the USGA kept pushing down in the wagger yeah. to yeah. keep filling. So we got all the way to number 251. Um, in the initial list. So we got way farther down than I think a lot of people thought. And here's the interesting thing. as And part of the exemption category criteria when the USGA shared it a few weeks ago, and, and they were very clear about by the time, by the entry deadline of July 8th, if you want to play, then you have to f- have filled out an application. And, and if you haven't filled out an application... And even if we get to your number and we call, you, you know, you can't you can't play unless you filled the application. I think that that burned a few players um, because as I yeah, was going I would bet through, that if you if you, if you yeah. didn't already do it, then or you weren't anticipating that you would need to because there was no way to get yourself in, so you didn't bother applying. Who could have anticipated that? It, because the way it sounds, Julie, is that okay? We're going to open it up to the world amateur golf ranking, and we're going to go deeper in. And we, okay, great. Then like all the top players are going to go. But with travel restrictions and coming in, and I'm looking at a list right now of the World Amateur Golf Ranking, and I can see, for example, on the women's side, there's only like two Americans, the way that I see it, in the top ten. You have plenty of players coming in from Europe, theoretically, but they would have to quarantine. It's one thing when elite athletes can sometimes get waivers and certain things, but a lot of them are not, depending on where they're coming from. And again, these are amateur players players, amateur athletes. So the finances become a much bigger deal. The time constraints, if they're students, could theoretically become a deal. And so what it sounds like from what you're describing is that we may have anticipated the field to be ultra strong because you're going to open it up based on world ranking. But in theory, it actually sounds like it's it's weakening to some degree because you have to go deeper down just to fill in people that can physically get to it and have and, and meet the criteria. And I would, I would say... You know, I, I think definitely the, near, the knee-jerk reaction was, you know, strongest fields we're ever going to see. But when you started thinking about, okay, there, there are some caveats this year, and, and, and international travel is one of them. But I think, I, I'm not sure I would say a weaker field. I think it's, it's more, the, whole, the goal here for the USGA, as they stated many times, and, and making the exemption categories for all four of the, of the championships that they're going to run this year, was to simulate a field that you would have gotten right. when you ran qualifying. And so you'd always right. get the outliers. And, and you know, there's maybe a, you know, a player in the 1200s or, or whatever, you know, that, that's ranked that, that gets in, has a hot day, or you mm-hmm. know, maybe just hadn't played enough events to, to have a very high ranking. That happens quite a bit. You've got some dark horses way down in the ranking that are, have far more talent than their ranking shows just based on what they play. But I, I think we are getting very close, you know, we're getting close to this is what a field probably would have looked like. And, and that was the whole goal for the USGA. So when we were talking early on about, I wonder what the USGA will do with these exemption categories. 
And and we all threw out ideas that we would like to see and that would have been crazy. We could have looked at other rankings and college <laughs> rankings and like Division two and Division three college rankings. And well, what if we brought in every state amateur, you know, from amateur champion from all 50 states? Like how, you know, that would have been cool. But I don't think we ever really expected that the USGA would go way out in left field and do something wild. I mean, they were trying to simulate a field that they would normally see. And I think they're probably going to get pretty close to doing it. But the USGA going out on a limb and getting crazy, I don't see that happening. You'd have to loosen up. I mean, that might mean wearing like a summer weight Navy blazer, you know, or something yeah. like that at an award ceremony. But let's not get totally yeah. nuts uh, on it. I don't, um, I don't know that that's their job, right? We kind of come to expect that we, you know, we wanted to see they, the kind of field we would normally see. So, so I'm, you look, know, if, I'm, if I think... they, if they really change the format around Julie, then people are going to look at the winner of this and be like, okay, asterisk after that one. Like True. it wasn't a legitimate quote unquote us women's am or USAM or whatever it's going to work out to be. You're trying to create as close to, I would assume as close to the original intent of the event as you, as you can get, you're trying to get that. And if, Travel is not going to allow that to happen. If people's unique circumstances aren't going to allow that to happen, you do the best you can. I mean, that's sort of like the theme that everybody in the U.S. should basically, I think, be taking over the last like six six months is that we're trying to do the best we can. And that goes for these organizations and sport. I think, you know, frankly, I'm just thrilled it's going to happen, you know, that these tournaments are going to actually be able to take place given the challenges that, that we're all facing, the fact that you can run elite amateur sport, you know, when many professional sports are not able to, to run speaks volumes about, about the game, about people's willingness to play the organization to, to make it happen. I think it's fantastic. Um, previous winners of this event on the women's side, you know, recent notable winners. If you go back, um, Lydia Ko in 2012, Danielle Kang wins twice, uh, including a 2010 win over Jessica Corda. Morgan Pressel in 2005, Jane Park in 2004. Give me a couple of names um, that you know are going to be there that people should just be aware of if they're going to try and follow this tournament. Who are, who are some players you like? Okay. I always throw out this name, Amelia Miliaccio. She's a, going to be a senior at Wake Forest. She's number five in the world ranking. She's, she's a top-ranked American. Interestingly, this will be her very first women's amateur. She she never has played this event. Last year, she actually was playing in the Pan American Games, representing the U.S. and won gold there. Chose to go ahead and do that that week. So this will be. I mean, she is a really strong match play player. So get her to the bracket, and I think she can have a really nice run. Um, a very strong junior that you may know of, Alexa Pano, will be in the field. We've seen her in junior events and amateur events. She made a run at a Symmetra title last year. Um, and I'm kind of going down the rankings here. Gina Kim is a Duke player. She was on the 2019 Duke title team. She's another one who's really strong. In the North and South match play bracket this week, making a run. Um I actually just wrote about last night a Division II player, Pilar Echevarria. She's from uh, Guatemala, and she's a Division, like I said, a Division II player. She was a, has been a four-time first-team All-American at the University of Indianapolis. I bring her name up because she's one of those players who you probably don't haven't heard about. She's probably the best college player that you've never heard of. She is in the round of 16 at the North and South. She's going to get into the Women's Am based on her world ranking. Um, Mega Gane, she uh, was a returning, I think she got to semifinals last year. Um, 
another kind of young up and coming. We just found out she's going to go to Stanford um, to play her college golf. So there's a there are a lot of really you know obviously a lot of names from the from the top of the rankings. But like for example, I spoke yesterday with Sierra Stout. She'll be a senior at Charlotte. She was number two hundred and fifty one in the rankings. So when the USGA put out that initial field list, she was the very last person to get in off her world ranking. So, so once the USGA filled all their exemption categories, the spots they had left, they went back to the world ranking. And they got all the way down to her. And she has a great story because she has tried over and over to qualify for a USGA event. This will be her first USGA event. She's missed the Women's Am qualifying by one shot the last two years. She actually caddied for Sierra Brooks at the Women's Amateur in 2018, which was at her home course um, in Tennessee. She's from Franklin, Tennessee. And so this year, her number's called. So I love that the way this worked out for some kids. I mean, you still have that element of unexpected entry, maybe, um, if you had the, the foresight and the good sense to fill out your application, because you never know. You can't get in if you don't try. So... There's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of good stories, as there always, you know, as there always is. There's always somebody who surprises us. There's always somebody we expect to play well, and they do. There's always some good upsets. I mean, it's a good place to learn new players' names, too. I mean, I hadn't really followed Mega, for example, until last year, and she just kept winning, and I thought, okay, here's a player we need to watch, and she played in the Women's Open. Uh, last year as well. So it's a good identifier of these are kids whose names we're going to see over and over. And, and like you, you mentioned with some of those names, Danielle Kang, Lydia Ko, you're going to keep seeing them. I, uh, I will follow any golfer named Mega. Let me tell you what, that, <laughs> that, that, has, that, that is right up there in terms of great golf names with Johnny Vegas. If you can't root for a golfer named Johnny Vegas, I don't okay. even know what time it is. It's it's just need, it needs to happen. Um, Register that with the go- Screen Actors Guild. Well, I'm telling you that that's just it's it's gold, baby. Yeah, gold over there. Um, shifting to the men's side, boy, if there was a good year to play in the USAM, let me tell you what. It's never a bad year. I mean, they're always going to some pretty Tony places at this point. But Bandon Dunes Resort hosting the USAM August 10 to 16. The match play portion. Is going to be on Bandon Dunes. The stroke play is going to be abandoned trails. Um, again, the, the field is going to be reduced. We're going from 312. This year it's going to be 264. It's a murderer's row. It's the 1928-29 Yankees when you look at the winners of this event. Obviously, you get Bobby Jones and Francis Wee Met going way back. Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods times three, Phil Mickelson, Lanny Watkins. Um, you get a little bit more recent. Um, Matt Kuchar, Matthew Fitzpatrick, a guy named Bryson DeChambeau win, wins this thing. It's um, it's a big, big event. And I think that this one is if if people follow any amateur golf, this is the this is the highlight one of them. And boy, I tell you what, get get your big screen TV going for this one. If you haven't had the privilege to to get to Bandon Dunes, this is another one that you're just going to be just blown away by. Um, golf weeks rankings of best courses in the u.s best courses you can play every course at this facility is is on there you've had a chance to play band what was your experience uh going up to bandon bandon dunes resort oh i love bandon any opportunity i get i'll go i've been i've been three times (laughs) so i've played everything except for sheep ranch now uh i don't this is sometimes a controversial question or a controversial answer bandon trails is my favorite (laughs) 
<laughs> Ooh, okay. And and yeah. what 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 got you about band and trails? I'm I'm not one to judge, but uh, which which one? What what got that one? It just feels so Oregon. Like it just feels so Pacific Northwest, and I and I love that feeling. And so I mean, I see the Atlantic every day. So I mean, not that those ocean views of the Pacific aren't brilliant, <laughs> gorgeous. I know, but and I love the cliffside holes and. You know, so obviously we're inland more with trails, but I just, I just really love kind of being out in the woods and trails. But it's, um, uh, you can't miss. I mean, when it really comes down to it, you can't miss. Per- personally, um, I've been once. Um, I've played them all except, as you mentioned, Sheep Ranch, which just opened in June. I think officially opened in June, but people were on that golf course well before that. Um, for me, Old McDonald is just un- unbelievable. To me, that was absolutely off the charts. Bannon Dunes, Pack Dunes, they're they're great as well. But but Old McDonald absolutely just mesmerized me. Um, I think it's because I played that one the best. Like I was playing well um, when I played that golf course. But one of the things I want to ask you is that these are very unique venues. Um, speaking of Bannon Trails and Bandon Dunes, when you look at other courses where this tournament is typically played, it is usually not always, but usually on one of the blue blood courses, if you will, um, that, that the USGA really likes. And you know, that, that sort of sounds kind of weird, but if you look at where we're going after this, we're going to Oakmont. Well, we've had a gazillion us opens there. Ridgewood country club, Cherry Hills, Hazeltine, the Olympic club in San Francisco, Marion, then back up to Oak Hill outside of Rochester. Those are what I think of as very traditional type of venues. Um, this one is not. Do you think that's going to make a difference in terms of the type of player that we might end up getting as a winner at at this year's USAM? You know, I'm not so sure that it will. And, and so keep in mind, a lot of these guys are college players. And so, you know, the joke in college golf is if, if you haven't played, you know, a 36-hole day in sideways rain and you can't feel your hands – and, you know, it's a nine-hour round, you know, you're out there all day, then have you really played college golf? And <laughs> so those guys, I mean, they have every shot when it comes to that. I, I'm not sure. Oh, I, you know, I think they I think they do appreciate the, the venues that they play. But, to, I mean, mm-hmm. to me, to go to, to Bandon and get to play a week of golf, by the time they arrive there, and the amateur circuit is cool because you're moving from week to – it's like a caravan – all these guys play together week to week. They're playing the, you know, they played the North and South two weeks ago. They're at the Southern this week. They'll go to Sunny Hannah. Then they'll go to the Western. Then they'll go to the U.S. Amateur. And, and they travel together. They see each other over and over. So it's a small world, even though, you know, you're with, you know, 200 some of your, your closest friends out there. Yeah. But, I mean, I just can't imagine a, a better way to spend your summer and have it culminate at Pandan Dunes when you're 19, 20, 22, whatever. Um, and yeah. granted, this is a little different. You know, there's, there's, I know that many of the stops, there aren't as many of the social things that there typically are in the, on the amateur circuit. There aren't the dinners and the banquets and the buffets, you know, are gone for safety reasons, but they're still out there together. So. Circling back to your question about does this produce a different kind of winner, I I don't 
know that it does. And unless, I mean, if, if we do have, and I have not scoured the USAM field, like I have the women's AM field, there are a few more internationals coming over. Um, and, and it may not even be a case of coming over. It may be a case of they stayed the Staying summer here. to play. Yeah. I, I, think, so I think they, you're right. I think, yeah. So they can still get uh, there, but this may favor a player who grew up in Ireland or, you know, even playing in, you know, some place where you're used to playing in those conditions where you have to punch your four iron 15 feet above the ground and, and know how to play that shot. Well, Sandy Scott is number eight right now in the World Amateur Golf Ranking from Scotland. And uh, tell you what, Sandy Scott from Scotland, if you if you don't put a couple <laughs> of pounds on that guy to win in a windy condition, I don't, again, I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Um, there are some players that I certainly recognize who, who I would assume are going to be a factor in this one. Um, Stuart Hagestad, number seven, has been playing for – I think the last 30 years as an amateur, I mean, he's only about like 30 years yeah, old, but like my gosh, the guy is just in every amateur event, just played Walker Cup successful there. He's played multiple U.S. Opens, U.S. Ams, et cetera. Um, looking at other players, again, I don't know the entire field filled out, but are there any players that you're looking at or that you're aware of that you're like, ooh, you know, these are quite, we, we realize, again, Andy Ogletree um, is still an amateur, Cole Hammer still an amateur. These are the guys that their name, those are the names that I recognize, but, but anything else that sort of jumps out at you as being like, Ooh, I, I'm a big fan of this particular player. You know, I'm, I've been kind of looking at the Southern Amfield this week. They're, they're playing in Dallas when, you know, windy place, Merido, all those Texas guys seem to be rising to the top. You mentioned Cole Hammer, the Cootie yep. brothers are up there. Um, Travis Vick is up there. Um, I'm also looking at, Cooper Dossie, he's a Texas guy coming back for a fifth year at Baylor. He he won the North and South at Pinehurst last year. Um, Noah Goodwin's an SMU player. You know, I'm I'm just kind of scanning down the the rankings here. Cannon Claycomb won the. Um, I'm blanking on <laughs> the tournament he won earlier this year. Um, he won kind of the first one of the the summer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like alphabet soup, you know. Rice you know, I, Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do that with my kids. Are you kidding me? Hey, What's boy. your name again? <laughs> yeah. You, girl. Come here. Help me with this. Yeah. And don't it's... forget, too, that they played the U.S. Amateur 4 ball at Bandon Dunes. That was last year. Scott right. Harvey and Todd Mitchell won that one, and they are both exempted back into the into this field, courtesy of that win. Scott Harvey would have made it by his world ranking anyway. Um, so I, I like – I mean – I, I just love watching the bracket form because sometimes you get guys and girls on the bracket that you think, wow, you know, I probably wouldn't have picked them at the beginning of the week to be left in match play. And then sometimes you get people who it's like, gosh, I, I can't fathom that you would have missed. Last year, Cole Hammer didn't get to the match play bracket after, you know, what what we know about him is remember, if he can yeah, just get into head-to-head play, he, you, you don't want to draw him because he's probably going to beat you mercilessly. Um, well, the hammer's going to come down. I mean, there's just so many. Right. It's, that, it's not even to. really worth talking about. It's lazy journalism right there when you do that one. But um, let's skip <laughs> ahead just a little bit to collegiate golf. Um, Dartmouth College recently announced that they are eliminating both the men's and the women's golf teams. And I believe that they are looking to sell the course that the university owns. 
um, Brown University in May, announced they're limiting the men's and women's golf teams, along with several other sports. Dartmouth is also limiting some other sports. That one is at Brown is getting legaled up. Some of the athletes have retained lawyers and legal counsel to try and fight that. But the Ivy League has already come out and said that they will not be holding any athletic competitions in any sports until at least January 1. And winter sports, which that falls into, they're going to evaluate in, in the weeks ahead. Um, obviously, different colleges and universities are taking different tacks when it comes to online learning, in-person learning, how many students are going to be on campus, how many students are going to be told to stay home, at least for the fall semester. Um, the Big Ten has come out and said that all athletic stuff, it sounds like for the fall, is going to be contested just simply in conference. So football games are what everybody's sort of really paying attention to. But this is going to be, I would assume, for, for all sports. What, what does all of this stuff mean for golf programs in the fall? What, how has the COVID-19 pandemic really you know, changed or altered the collegiate golf landscape? I will be honest in saying that the, this is the thing that's sort of coming. I mean, the college season is coming down the pipe really quickly. And this is the thing that I am still really unclear about. And and having talked to some coaches this week when I saw the women's Anfield and some of their international players are not in that field. And so instantly that made me think, okay, well, what does this mean for college golf? Because I'm thinking about, can players get here? Can they even form rosters to compete? But then there's the entire other question of, well, are schools going to allow them to compete? And yeah. things change so quickly. And, the, you know, the thing about the couple of conferences that have said we're just going to compete against interconference schools, that, that doesn't really work f- with the For college golf, golf model that we know because you generally have – 14, 15 schools in a field and they come from everywhere. And so that's not to say that, you know, the schools that are kind of in the, you know, Southeast region couldn't play together who are, you know, kind of around that Arizona, Southern California area, you know, even up North, you get up to Stanford, couldn't just drive a little ways and compete against each other. And you'd have smaller fields. I mean, it, it could work, but it's not like you play one team each week like other sports do. So I don't, I don't know how well that model works for college golf. I also don't have a good sense of, you know, if one sport falls, does every sport fall? I think all of us mm-hmm. are holding our breath for college football. I think, you know, I think everybody is. I think everybody knows the reality is that college football goes and it knocks over right. a lot of other dominoes. So, I mean, golf is not a revenue-producing sport. So at the end of the day, I think a lot of athletic directors and athletic departments are going to be looking at this as that if we can't get football to at least bring in some revenue, it's going to be really hard to justify and very easy to defend um, under the premise of keeping all the athletes and the students safe, which who, who's going to argue about, you know, you're, you're keeping your students too safe or you're going overboard on that? It's It's a hard argument to have. Um, but I think that, you know, as someone who, who played a non-revenue generating collegiate sport himself in tennis, I think that's an easy one to, to not do. It's not very many athletes. It doesn't bring in revenue. And, you know, it's, it's something that, that I'm not surprised because a lot of those programs are also feeling the pinch from, from this stuff as well. I, I immediately was thinking that schools in the South and in the Southwest will have some advantage because for example, 
Big Ten schools, it's going to start getting cold. I mean, it's just the reality of where you live starts to kick in. I mean, there's reasons why most of the elite collegiate golf programs are in places where you can play golf year-round. Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, Alabama, California, Arizona, uh, which isn't to say that there aren't you know excellent golfers who have come from northern climate schools, but you start running out of daylight in Iowa, in Illinois, in Indiana, certainly in Michigan, New York, um, you know, all of that, Colorado, the snow starts flying, it gets cold, and yeah, there's indoor facilities, but it would seem to me that that schools in the South would be able to play longer, have more opportunities for dual matches. If they're if they're going to eliminate tournaments, would you think that that they'll do spontaneous dual in conference matches or or things? It'll just be easier for the schools in the South, won't it? Yeah, but and then it then it brings up the question of how do the rankings work because it's you know it's based on your head to head ranking and who you play and where your common wins are and where your common losses are. So if you're mm-hmm. not if you're not playing, I just I I can't wrap my head around a model where tournaments as we know them are not happening. And the the good thing at least is that the championship season in golf is in the spring. So even if the fall doesn't happen. It's not as if the entire 2020-21 season doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can reevaluate in the spring. And I think even if it happens in a modified way or even if there are teams that struggle to field a full squad because they they're having issues getting their international players here and maybe maybe they sit out the fall and then you can still play a loaded spring and and try and, you know, play your way into the championship season in, in May. So there just there are just so many <laughs> there are just so many things in the air right now. And yeah, so that's why it's like I you know I just yeah, watching. We're getting used to having to say that. Like we don't know. I think that you know throughout all of the pandemic, like we we're looking for answers. You know, should you do this? Should you not do that? Should you avoid this? You don't have to like we just don't know. We don't like as a society, I think, the the answer the honest answer that we just don't know. And um, as long as I would put out that it's made as fair as possible to as many schools as you can make it, then look, you know, again, this is, this would be great to be able to have a national championship the way that we traditionally know it in 2021. We didn't have that in 2020. I mean, college sports basically went away starting in the middle of March and, I think it was the right call. I mean, it's unfortunate. I would not want to have had my senior year basically taken away from me. I 100% get that, and I feel terrible for the student-athletes who had to go through that. Um, The NCAA has said several months ago that collegiate athletes who basically lost out on their last year of eligibility are going to be given another season of athletic eligibility. What does that mean potentially for golf programs? I mean, if you've got a student who says, I want to come back, and you've been recruiting and you have kids showing up as a freshman, a first year student who, you know, you're looking for some big things on how, how is that potentially affecting golf? Well, I, I think it's different at every school and it, and it depends on h- how you find the funds to keep a player who is wanting to come back for a fifth year and who you really want to bring back for a fifth year. Can you still find a way to get your freshmen there? I think, you know, maybe some players who hadn't, some incoming players who hadn't committed yet, this with the recruiting dead period going on, 
They are probably having a difficult time making a last-minute commitment. They may have a gap year. But but there are also players who, I mean, there are, there are teams, I think, who if they are in a position to be able to pick up another player, they absolutely will, and they are. And that's why the transfer portal is buzzing the way that it is. There are hundreds of players in that transfer portal. And just to, to pick a few who are, you know, some players are looking at this and saying, I have this extra year of eligibility, so so I'm going to do something with it that matters, especially given that if you didn't go to Q school and already, this is on the women's side, already secure your status on the Symmetra Tour for the next year, on, on the LPJ for the next year, then you don't have a chance to do that again for another full year. So it you might as well go try and play, you know, play another year of college golf. But a couple of names that come up to me on, come to mind on the men's side is like Jonathan Brightwell as a player at UC or UNC Greensboro and he's going to spend his fifth year at Oklahoma so he's transferring to the top ranked team in the nation where he's going to have to really fight to get on that roster he's got a load of talent but that's going to be a new landscape for him but and you know I talked to him at the north and south or when while he was playing the north and south by phone and he said, why not? Why shouldn't I try and push myself in this last semester? Another really cool example is a player at Southern Mississippi. His name is Walker Kesterson, and he grew up just outside of Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri is, and always wanted to play for the University of Missouri. It's his in-state school, university. And so he's going to come back and do a fifth year there. He's, he's going to kind of get to live the dream after he's improved his game and really worked to become a better player at Southern Miss. And now he's got this opportunity that he always wanted. So there are some silver lining type stories here. If all the pieces fit together, if you can, if you can create an opportunity for yourself and a school has the resources or, you know, the, the, the scenario works out okay. So there, there are going to be some cool stories as we see all these kids moving around, but it's unprecedented movement from team to team. Hard to keep, you, hard to keep track of. You talked a little bit about a, uh, a dead period, basically a silent period with regard to recruiting. What, what does that mean? And um, is there usually a, a dead period when coaches are not allowed to recruit? So, th- so there are, um, you know, some restrictions in terms of age and what classes and when you can, communicate with players in, in different ways but the, the recruiting dead period right now it, it is you know it just keeps coaches from for one thing being able to go and watch kids at tournaments it's kind of funny some of the coaches I've talked to it's like you know what am I what do I do with my summer now I've got all this time on my hands that I usually don't have because the the college season doesn't stop for coaches in the summer they are thinking several classes ahead and they may be traveling internationally to go watch, um, you know, the British amateurs or wherever and traveling around the country. I mean, the U S junior and the girls junior, (laughs) the trail of coaches behind the top ranked players and particularly the ones who have yet to commit. I mean, it's, it's six, seven, eight coaches are kind of stuck watching the, the best players. So it, it definitely, that landscape is, is changed because it kind of puts a halt on, you know, being able to search for that talent. So it, the the rip, the trickle down effect and the ripple effect goes for several several classes of incoming players and the current players. I mean, every everybody is feeling this in some way. But I guess you know everybody is is feeling the hurt. From, yeah, from they're, this they're not period. alone. You know, yeah. in the and, in the grand scheme of things, right. you know, I I feel for all these guys and 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 women who are 
having their athletic careers and a lot of things that they've worked very, very hard for upended for nothing that they had anything to do with. It's unfortunate. At the same time, um, it's the same for everybody. It sucks. It's, it's terrible. Like I, you know, this is not exactly a newsflash, but, um, hopefully at least there'll be a fair or equitable way that, that they come up with some kind of a system for players to play out their eligibility if they so desire. Um, I would imagine some people are going to say, okay, like that was enough and they're going to go on and do other things. And that's great. You know what? Uh, That that's, that's just fine. I think a lot of them are going to do that. And I'm sure there are college systems and coaches who are just like, you know, it stinks that you didn't get to play your last year, but we're done here. We've got other commitments. We've made obligations. And this is just something really screwy that came up and, and we're choosing to go in a different direction. And I, I get it. You know what? It's there, There's no nice, clean way to make all of this stuff work. Um, but what we can do is make sure that after the amateur season is basically getting to a completion, uh, say like mid-August, we've got to have you back on the four press so we can talk about the U.S. Women's Am and the U.S. Am, because um, otherwise we're going to have to make a road trip to Bandon. And seeing as how we're both yeah. East Coasters, um, that's a long drive. I'm not sure that I'm ready for that many flights just yet. Maybe I will be soon, but um, yeah, it's uh, Bandon on a good day is a pain in the ass to get to. Right. right now, I can't even imagine. But it might be worth the three and a half days in the car to get myself out there. How how many days do you think it would take you to go from Cocoa Beach, Florida? That has got to be the longest road trip you can do in the continental U.S. I mean, I, Flo- I Florida think, to the to Oregon coast. I, I I can't I can't drive for that long. I can tell you that I I drive I make the annual pilgrimage to Northeast Missouri every summer with my dog in the back seat to visit my hometown, and that takes me a full two days. So I can only imagine oh. it's at least two more. I can I couldn't do it. My butt would be numb. For days. Well, I appreciate you coming on the forward press, Julie. Stay cool down there in Florida. Um, continue to work on the short game. Are you getting much use out of that chippo that uh, I saw you with a couple of weeks ago? I, I am actually. It makes for a nice, <laughs> like, um, nice happy hour game in our backyard. Have a glass of wine, have a cocktail, work Correct. on the short game. It's nice. It's great. Yes. It's like having the cradle, like, right there in your, in your driveway. It's perfect. Exactly. I won't keep you from it any longer. I appreciate you coming on. We'll talk soon. Thank you.